Well, church family, if you have your copy of God's word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Hebrews chapter three, as we find ourselves in the middle of that chapter. And as you find your your place there, I wanna just begin by reading. We're gonna cover the entirety of verses seven um, all the way down through verse 19. But as we begin our time uh, in worship in the word, I wanna just read beginning in verses 13 and verse 14. So if you would follow along with me where this is the word of the Lord for us. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Pray with me, Father. We pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word. Father, would you change your church so that we would look more and more like your son, Jesus. We ask these things in his name and God's people said, amen. If I were to ask you in beginning this morning, rhetorically speaking, what is the most dangerous threat that exists towards the church today? Now you could scroll on a Twitter feed or on a social media account and perhaps you might get any one number of answers. You perhaps may hear things like woke theology or CRT or the latest movement within the LGBT community. You may get references of of cultural issues. This past week, if you would have asked me that, I would have said, obviously, it's Chinese weather balloons floating across the United States. There are many threats that exist, but there is yet just one threat that the writer of Hebrews identifies and he declares as the most dangerous of all threats that exist within the life of the church. And that threat can be summarized in just one word, unbelief. Unbelief, a failure of God's people to take God at his word, a failure of God's people to to know his word and to apply it to their life and to their context, simply unbelief, not taking God at his word. We remember from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, That when sin entered into the world in the garden, it did so in the form of unbelief. As Adam and Eve fell from grace, the question that came up was, did God really say that? And as Adam sits passively by and Eve falls into sins and and humanity is ruined from its fellowship away and, and now in isolation, separated from God, and therefore then the wages of sin becomes Death, Friend, I would say to you that just as unbelief plagued Adam and Eve, unbelief plagued Israel, and unbelief plagues us today. We find ourselves in a text in Hebrews 3, and the beginning part of Hebrews 3 is the, the quotation of a psalm. And so if you would, I want to read through that quotation of that psalm, and as we begin to explain it and see it, where the word says this in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And the writer of Hebrews, in contending that one of the greatest dangers to the church is unbelief, he begins chapter 3 by quoting Psalm 95, 
Verses seven through 11 are a direct quotation of Psalm 95. Now, we don't have time to walk through Psalm 95, but, but would you like to know that Psalm 95 was actually written based on Numbers chapter 14? And the treatment that we see all the way in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, is a direct quotation of Psalm 95, which was a direct inference to Numbers 14. And so we begin to see in this moment how the entirety of the Bible begins to fit together as we come before the Lord, as he writes to his church and he quotes the psalmist and and he references Numbers 14. Now, in case uh, you don't remember Numbers 14, let me just remind you and summarize it very quickly. The people of Israel are on the cusp of entering into the promised land. They're on the cusp of entering into the land of Cana, the land that God had promised all of those years ago. He had delivered them and plucked them from the hand of Pharaoh. And they had watched and they had seen God do miraculous things. They had watched and seen God bring about plagues to deliver his people and flies and hailstorms, and, and he brought about the darkness and the gnats and the ultimate killing of the firstborn all the way to get them to this point in Numbers 14 where, where they're about to walk in and, and they're about to be delivered the promise that God had given them. And so you know the story, right? They, they send out spies into the land. And they say, go and, and see if this is the land that God has promised. If this is where we are supposed to go. And so they send 10 spies into the land. And you remember the story in Numbers 14. Eight of them came back and said, The men and women of this land, they are like giants, for surely we cannot take it. And yet two of the 10 come back, Jacob and Caleb. And they say, no, God God is with us and he has promised to be with us. Therefore, we will go and, and we will take the land. But the rest of Israel did not believe God. They did not take him at his word. This spirit of unbelief began to pervade all throughout the camp. And it says later on in Numbers that they began to grumble towards God. God eventually asked Moses this question, how how long will it be for my people to not believe me? How many signs and how many wonders and how many things must I demonstrate and how many things must I show them and, and how far must my deliverance go so that my people will not grumble against my name, Moses? And so Moses pleads on behalf of the, of the Israelites, but ultimately God characterizes their unbelief in Numbers 14 too. He, he calls it a, a grievous sin and he calls the people one of the only instances in the first five books of the Old Testament where God declares his people evil before him because of their unbelief. Because of their failure to take God at his word and therefore he banishes them from the promised land for 40 years and they harden their hearts against him. He hardens their hearts and this goes back and forth to and from and in comes the writer of Hebrews. And he quotes that Psalm that references that event in Numbers, meaning this, people of the people of God who are often brought about by a pillar of smoke by day, led by him, a pillar of fire by night. They, they ended up missing and they ended up, more importantly, forfeiting the blessings of God because of their failure to believe him at his word. And so the writer of 
Hebrews, he, he says, beginning in verse 12, he begins to characterize what unbelief in the life of the believer actually looks like. In verse 12, read with me where he says, therefore take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Therefore take care, brothers, lest there be any evil in you, an unbelieving heart that does not believe. This letter was written to the church, to God's people. And yet there were many of them that were in danger of, of drifting away and falling away and allowing their, their hearts to be hardened by the, by the things of the world. And they began to do things and, and they began to become deceived by the things that were in their hearts. Oftentimes I'll, I'll hear in particular younger generations, college students and, and high school students that I just wanna to listen to my, to my heart and I, wanna, and I wanna follow my heart. Yet at the same time, the writer of Proverbs says, yet it is the heart that is deceitful above all things. Friends, can I tell you this? As pastorally and gently as I, as I can, do not, friends, listen to your hearts. It is the very thing that oftentimes will deceive you into, into believing the wrong things or to think the wrong things and to feel the wrong things. Now, God clearly has given us emotions. He's clearly given us hearts. And, and so our emotions ought to be informed by the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. Then we allow our heart to guide us once and only after it has been led by the spirit of God according to his word. And so therefore, how we feel must be informed by what we think, by what we see, because the writer says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you a, an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the, from the living God. He's warning us against the same thing that the people of Israel did, because sin is, is deceitful. Sin is the thing that entangled us, it entangles us. It is the, the thing that leads us away. It is the thing that over time when we grapple in it and we dabble in sin, it, it does nothing but harden our heart away from the things of God. And it makes us run from his people and to run from his word and, and not to, to be with him in his presence. It leads you to fall away, as he says literally in verse 12, to fall away from the living God. This idea of falling away, it's a very active rejection of God, not just some passive and indirect or inconsequential action. Meaning this, he's not saying you, you accidentally just did it, but in this moment, there's this deliberate path and there's these deliberate seasons and rhythms that exist within your life and they begin to take hold of you and they begin to take captive of you and they begin to lead you astray. Now where scholars would contend within this is, is it possible then, according to Hebrews 3, and, and there's several other warning passages in the book of Hebrews that we'll get to talk about over the course of the semester, is it, is it possible therefore then for the believer to lose his faith and to, and to lose his salvation? And personally, I don't believe that the word of God teaches that, but I do believe that believers can, because I've seen it in my own life, in my own heart, and with those around me, that certainly we can be deceived. And certainly we can be led down paths of destruction and, and corruption at times. And so he says, therefore, take care, my brothers and sisters, lest there be in any evil in your heart, unbelieving, leading you to fall away from him. Usually, 
The unbelief that exists within your life and my life, it often, oftentimes finding, finding itself manifesting itself in, in progressive ways, gradual ways. And what that progression looks like for you and for me over time and in time, it, it begins first when we don't fully believe. In other words, there is real doubt that exists within our hearts, not on everything that we would wrestle with in the faith, but it's simply a doubting of the faithfulness of God in our life. A doubting of his, of his faithfulness or a, or a doubting in that moment, is Christ really better in this moment as I'm caught up and entangled in my sin? Is Jesus really better than those things? Doubting God, that he even really cares about what you're caught up in or, or your sin or your circumstance or your situation. And maybe somewhere along the way, you begin to, to flirt with sin because you doubted there were any consequences to that sin. This is what the writer means when he says to guard our unbelieving hearts, let, it, let, it, let, us, let us lead us away from the living God. Secondly, in that progression, when you don't fully believe, is an erosion of, of confidence. You begin to doubt God, and, and therefore, in the midst of that doubt, doubting God's faithfulness, the fear comes next. The fear follows the doubt over time. That maybe God is not really worthy of my trust, that maybe God is not really worthy of my time, and so the anxiety begins to, to reign in your life. It begins to cripple in, and, and so therefore, you begin to become deceived by your unbelieving heart through this erosion of confidence. When you don't fully believe, the confidence erodes, and then somewhere in the midst of that, the pride sets in, and you begin to think too highly of yourself. Now in the midst of that, you have come up with your own plan, your, your own means, your own ways that seem better than God's ways, and so then you outright refuse to obey God in certain areas. This is what happened to, to Israel. This is what happened to the, the people of God in the book of Hebrews. They began to go about things in their own way, thinking of themselves too highly, and then fourthly, what they began to do is they began to remove themselves from everyone. They began to forsake the gathering, as he later on says within his word. They begin to walk away from the church, those committed to Christ and, and his kingdom. And so you, you rarely begin to, to see them. They begin to think that, that my way of, of walking in faith and my way of doing things, I, I'm better off on my, on my own. And so you begin to remove yourself from those things. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 13. He says, you take care. Guard your unbelieving heart lest you fall away from the living God. And this is how you do this according to verse 13, to address your unbelief. And I want you to notice in particular how he says to address your unbelief with verse 14. He says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We're gonna see this terminology exist throughout the book of, of clinging tightly or holding fast to Jesus and his word and to his, to his gospel. To hold firm requires that, that we have this present and active mental energy engaged, that we're not simply engaging on autopilot. We don't ever drift towards godliness, but rather we must be engaged and strategic in our walks with him and always pursuing, always yearning to, to hold on to him. But just as the song that we just sang a few moments ago communicates, 
The one of the most life-changing moments in my life when I was a college student, it was when I began to realize that, that my salvation, my perseverance in the faith, my walking with God for the rest of my life, it really had nothing to do with how tightly I held on to him, but it came from an understanding about how tightly he was holding on to me. That I was his and, and he was mine, that I was a part of his family, that there was nothing I could do to, to disappoint him, to allow him to turn his back on me again. I had genuinely and desperately had called upon the name of the Lord. And when I began to realize that truth, that it was more about God holding on to me than me holding on to him, then it changed my life. Yet in the midst of that understanding that truth, we recognize that that we must do our part and we must put in our work. We must exhort one another. We must do these things for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. Friend, would you hold on to it this morning? What the writer of Hebrews is saying ever so gently in this moment, he is pointing back to the cross and he is pointing back to the empty tomb and he is saying, there, there is your hope, there is your, there is your confidence, there is your sustenance, there is the, the thing that motivates you to, to go forward. He has defeated sin, death, and evil on your behalf and my behalf. And so when he says to hold fast, he's saying, look to the cross of Christ and hold on to it. To fix your gaze upon it to put your eyes upon it, to put your attention upon it. But then we'd be remiss that in this, in this moment, understanding to guard our hearts against the deceitfulness of sin, the hardening of hearts, if we just simply ignored verse 13 in the text. Notice what he says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened. Exhort one another every day. I find that language in this moment, it's, it's striking in a, in a day and age in which people are, are walking away from the church and, and their faith, they're, they're seeing the church as irrelevant or, or doesn't apply to their life and they, and they walk away. Yet in this moment, the command for God's people, if we guard our hearts against the sin of unbelief, and we see that he says that one of the jobs of the Christian is that we are to exhort one another along in the faith. Amen. In other words, what he's saying is we, we need each other. In other words, what he is saying is we, we must have each other. We must sit by each other to the right and to the left, to the person in the front and to the person in the back, that we need one another. Why? The reason why he says this is because it is in the context, in particular, of small groups, in the context of community, walking with other people, that it helps us counter deception. This is the whole point of, of verse 13. In other words, what he's saying is, is that you and I individually, we, we have blind spots that exist within our life. We have things that exist within our life that we, we don't understand and that we forget about from time to time, that we're deceived by those things. And so he says, because you and I all have blind spots in our life, Therefore, we must meet with one another and we must exhort one another. We must teach one another. We must come alongside one another. Amen. You see, the glory and the benefit of when you go to a small group on Sunday morning or you go to a community group throughout the week and, and you begin to talk out loud and process your faith and, and to share insights that you've gathered from God's word, you, you see things sometimes that the person 
to the right or to the left of you didn't see. And you begin to understand God in, in greater ways and in more intimate ways because of the person on your right and the person on your left. Therefore, brothers, I encourage you to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Friends, guess what? Today is called today. And therefore, as a people of God, guarding against the sin of unbelief, we recognize that community helps us counter deception, but community also does another thing. It, it ultimately helps us point to the Christ goodness. That when we're actively engaged in, in right community and in true community, it points us to the, to the goodness of God. It reminds us through testimony at times about how God has delivered someone for sick, from sickness or, or he's provided for them in, in some way. Authentic community points to Christ's goodness every time. That when we come alongside and, and engage, we, we begin to see and we're reminded of his faithfulness. We're reminded of, of what he did to Israel in the wilderness. We're, we're reminded of what he did when, when we lived in the wilderness of our own sin and how he brings us forward and he delivers us and he, and he reconciles us to the Father and he, and he calls us by name. That first day that we realize that he sees us as we really are, and that he embraces us and that he changes us and that he moves us along to look more and more like Christ when we are engaged in community and we are engaged in small groups and we are engaged with our family. It always points us to the goodness of Jesus. Now, I think I'd be remiss in this moment to remind us of a couple of things, a truth when it comes to just growing in community that I wanna center us in on as a church as we walk forward, as we leave this place attempting to exhort one another in the faith and to grow in the faith. Number one is this, that our, from our preaching in our pulpits to our departments, to our Sunday schools, all of those things, first and foremost, is rooted in the gospel first. Gospel first every time. The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus applied to our lives each and every day. This is what we center our lives around. Him, not the latest cultural fad, not the, the latest debate that exists within the Twitter world or on whatever news channel that you watch, to not engage politically speaking within our classes, to, to not talk about whatever the last hot topic is, that, that rather our purpose in meeting is that we would center our lives around Jesus because friends, can I tell you, there is absolutely nothing else in this world that is worth centering our lives around except him. And so it is gospel first, it is gospel second, it is gospel third. And we orient our lives in the context of our small groups around this application and around this truth. Secondly, I'll say this to you, is one of our core values that it is biblical faithfulness in every interaction that we have with one another. So that if we are to be a people that engages in exhorting one another, that if we're attempting to guard our hearts against the sin of unbelief, according to the writer of Hebrews, then in every interaction, in every word that we speak, in every feeling that we feel, that we are attempting to be biblically faithful, that we believe that God's word is, is God's word, that he has spoken to his people, that it's relevant to our lives, that we can apply it today and, and tomorrow and the next day, and yet sometimes within church life, Biblical faithfulness gets ignored or it gets put to the, put to the side. 
And other things begin to to creep in. And this is that slow progression that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. To hold fast to Christ, to cling to the cross. Otherwise, you will cling to other things within this world. Thirdly, I would say this to you several weeks ago. I was counseling with an individual that was talking about and sharing a few frustrations in, in their church. Not our church, of course, but another church. He said, I'm really just struggling to, to find friends in my, in my small group that I'm attending on a, on a Sunday morning. And, and uh, nobody just seems to be real. And everybody's there and these spoken platitudes. And, and on and on the, the conversation went. And I, and I just said back to my friend, I said, well, one of the things that you and I must always be reminded of and a truth that we ought to live in is that authenticity, it starts with you. That if you want people to be authentic with you, you must be authentic with them. You must understand that in the context of small groups, sometimes when we gather to exhort one another that our focus is on Christ, everyone comes at at different levels. Everyone comes running at at different speeds at times. And so I said, if you you want people to to be authentic with you, if you want people to to share, then then first and foremost, you must be authentic with them and, and you must be willing to share. But the second thing that I said to my friend was this, That in the context of your small group, perhaps the question that you could ask is, maybe what is it about you and how you interact and what you say that might keep them from wanting to be authentic with you? Like maybe it it starts not with the person to the right or to the left, but maybe it starts with the person that that you speak to your own heart and to your own life. Years ago, serving in a a church staff, we had an instance on staff where a staff member had, had done a wrong and, and made, a, made a huge, terrible mistake. And the mistake was, was discovered later on down the road through a, a series of events and, and circumstances. And so the elders gathered around and we dealt with that mistake appropriately with that individual. We dealt with it appropriately with our, with our church and, and we addressed it and we were able to, to attempt to, to move forward in, in health. And and at one point, I asked this staff member as his pastor, I said, why, why didn't you just come and tell me? We, we could have fixed this. We could have we solved this. And, and you would still have a, have a job here. And, and we would still be working together and, and serving together. Why, why didn't you, you come and, and just tell me? I could have helped. And he paused for a moment and he, and he, he sat there and sort of looked off into, into space and he said, I just, I just didn't think by, by how you led at the time that, that I could tell you and that you would respond to me in, in grace and in mercy. And, and right there in that moment, the Lord God, the Holy Spirit began to convict me where I began to ask that question to myself. Not that I had done anything wrong, not that I was the one that made the mistake, but I said, Lord, What is it about me that that would keep this person from being willing to come and to tell me about the mistake that he has made? And so we begin to talk about that with our elders because the elders were applied to this as well. What was it about us and and how we led and why? And and we, we came up with several things, but we began to have great introspection in those moments that I think all of us certainly need at times. And so if the gospel is first and Biblical faithfulness in all of our interactions. Authenticity begins with, with us. Fourthly, I would say to you this, that a, that a healthy church that gathers to exhort one another to guard against the deceitfulness of sin and unbelief has a strong commitment to one another. They love each other deeply. 
They love each other and, and are committed to one another. Years ago, in, a, in another church that I, that I served, I dropped out of our, our pastoral fellowship that we had. A group of like-minded pastors, we all believed in the same thing, the same doctrine, and we would gather together. And the purpose was for mutual edification and mutual encouragement. But after a while, I just kind of left. and I was like, I'm not really encouraged, and, and I don't really feel edified. And the reason was is because this group of pastors in particular, we would gather together, and then all of a sudden, the complaints about their church would begin to, to fly in. And they would talk about how awful their chairman of the deacons were, or their deacons or their elders. They began to identify they couldn't find teachers, that nobody seemed to really care. And all of those things might have and may have been true. But as I sat there and looked, and I sat there and listened, and I, I began to ask myself, it, it doesn't seem like these shepherds called to shepherd those sheep it doesn't seem like they genuinely are committed to one another and committed to loving and caring for them and meeting them where they're at. You see, a healthy church that exhorts one another in Christ, that holds fast to Christ, they are deeply committed to one another. Fifthly, and our church does this so incredibly well, there is generosity in meeting the needs that exist within the group. There is generosity that, that exists in meeting the needs within the group. You give sacrificially. You hear and see the need in the group, and you go and you meet the need. This happens in our church on a, on a weekly basis, where I hear stories about you coming alongside other people that are in your group. Sometimes they're out of your circle, and, and you meet the needs. You practice the kindness and, and the generosity. Friends, can I, can I just exhort you for a moment and to say, keep doing just that. Keep coming alongside and, and keep meeting the needs and being authentic, being committed to one another, being biblically faithful, and then most of all, keeping the gospel First, because here's the warning as we end in verse 15. As it is said today, in light of all of these things, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For you who were those who heard and yet rebelled, so you heard it, but yet you rebelled, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? They saw these things, and with him was he provoked for 40 years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom him did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because that one word, the most dangerous thing that is against the church, that attacks the church, they did not enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. Friend, as we close this morning, I simply ask you a series of questions. Number one is this. As we bow before the Lord and go before him, the question is this for me this week. Lord, am I willingly or unwillingly hardening my heart towards the things of your kingdom and your purpose? Where in my, in my heart do I, I need to be softened towards you, towards his, your church, towards your people, towards greater kingdom purposes? Where in my life do I need to change? Am I becoming more comfortable by the, with the ways and the tactics of the world rather than just simply being conformed to your righteousness and to your obedience and, and to your standard? Pray with me. Father, we pray that it is not said of us like many of the recipients in the book of Hebrews, 
that we heard your voice and we hardened our hearts. And so Father, I pray that we would not be in this moment led astray by the deceitfulness that exists within our hearts, the sin to which you later say so easily entangles us. And Father, we're grateful for the reminder this morning that, that the way that we guard against our unbelief is that we hold fast to your gospel and we hold fast to one another. And so Father, would you help us do that faithfully today, this week, tomorrow, in the months to come, in the years ahead? Would you help us be a people that is committed strongly to your word and to one another to grow in the context of community that we would make much of you in all of the ways that you give us and the task and all the things that you've assigned us to do. Lord, let us be faithful and help us overcome our unbelief. So we ask these things in Christ's name. God's people said, amen.